This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
Jackson went wrong for Fay Ray and King Kong. They got caught in a celluloid jam. Then at a deadly pace, it came from outer space. And this is how the message ran. So, Ros, in just seven days I can make you a man. Those are words that you've probably one of the people in London that has the least interest in that prospect. Yes, indeed so. And yet, they are profoundly ambiguous in context. Like everything in the Rocky Horror Show and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And you've no idea how... how in that year, the year of... gosh, the year when the Stardust Tour, the movie of Cabaret, suddenly... All sorts of possibilities were apparent that had not been apparent before. And the tricep makes me shake, makes me wanna take Charles Atlas by the So before we talk to Lacey Turner about particularly the kind of the aspects of the film to do with queer culture then and now, mm-hmm. which I'm hoping you'll, you'll talk about, I want to know two things. One thing is, with your cultural critic hat on, you've written about thick text a lot, this idea that... Uh, why don't I let you explain what thick text well, is? Well, the, the idea is that we are sometimes told by cultural commentators hostile to and uncomprehending of popular culture that whereas high culture is consumed intelligently often uh, sometimes as a uh, as a boring task for the bourgeoisie to prove that they're almost as good as the aristocracy but sometimes by other artists as a way of entering into discourse with the past of Endlessly making things new, of endlessly enriching itself. I mean, once you've read the discussion of Beethoven's Fifth in E.M. Forster's Howard's End, Mm. you can't unread it. So texts overlay each other. There is a dialogue between past and present. My argument which I've called the thick text argument, is that this is true of popular culture as well. That popular culture has layers. Popular culture, especially in an era where it's all instantly available because of the internet, means that there is a constant mutually reinforcing dialogue between old and new in popular culture as in high culture. In fact, the distinction becomes meaningless precisely for that reason. A critic like Adorno argued that jazz and other sorts of popular music would never be art because they were created by capitalism as a drug for the proletariat. And this was never true because he completely failed to understand the role of jazz in the African-American community, for one thing because he, you know, like most white middle-class people, then and now, he was a bit racist. Mm. Or certainly subscribed to a lot of stereotyped ideas about negrophilia. Yeah. That it, you know, jazz was significant, but only as some kind of jungle rhythm. Yeah, and only as something that white people could do something interesting with. Um, 
<laughs> it's funny that we're talking about things that only white people do in the Rocky Horror Show. Anyway, moving on. Yes, exactly. Exactly so. Um, we will talk about Fangs later on, which is, yes, is an indeed Egyptian so. film. So it's not, it's not all snow yeah, blindness. But yes, I mean, one of the things looking back, Rocky Horror, pretty white show. But Indeed, white bread show. It also works as a thick but text. So what I want to talk, talk to you all about All texts, my, my argument about popular culture, te- about thick text generally, but particularly in a way popular culture, thick texts, is that they're always provisional. That there's always now a sense of how they could have been otherwise, of the choices that got made. They're all collective because they're all part of a tradition, they're part of a dialogue, they're part of a discourse. They're all contingent, as I've said, rather than provisional. They're all collective, and they're all, in a sense, collaborative. I mean, all artists, to some extent, collaborative, because at the very least, you're engaged in... If you're writing a sonnet, you're engaged with the the sonnetness of the sonnet, mm. which is an artifact that's been created down many centuries. If you're writing a comic for Marvel, you're involved with the whole structure of continuity that's been built up. You're involved with your feelings about that continuity. My argument about Rocky Horror, in both forms, is that it's in dialogue with a lot of other music theatre. Uh, Jim Sharman, who was the producer, had directed a famous and highly controversial and very sexual production of Don Giovanni. The point about Frankenfurter as a protagonist of music theatre is this doesn't mean that Frankenfurter is unalloyedly admirable. Like Don Giovanni, who is a rapist and a murderer, and yet, and yet, and yet, when he is dragged off to the hell he earned and is given the chance to repent and and be other than himself, he says no. He doesn't say no. He sings, shouts it. But there are also things about Rocky Horror where it's just a sort of repository for stuff uh, which is like the sort of appendix or duodenum is kind of thing which cultural evolution has not yet dispensed with because there's no reason to and which are just kind of there but have no meaning or resonance now one example of which is obviously the title music science fiction double feature there aren't any science fiction double features anymore or if there are they're purely uh, an artificial event you try and explain that to the kids now you try and say to them oh you used to go to the cinema and there'd be them would be alongside it, the terror from beyond space. Yeah. Them and it. Yeah. And they won't know what you're talking about. Well, they might know some of the films in that song. The Day the Earth yeah, Stood still, still. I was about to say, The Day the Earth Stood Still has been remade with Keanu Reeves, less memorably than the original, but certainly the original has stood the test of time. So another thing that's in there, which I think is interesting to think about, and we were playing uh, a minute ago, is um, the reference to Charles Atlas. Yeah. Now... Charles Atlas in Just Seven Days I Can Make You a Man, Dynamic Tension, was an advert in comics and magazines that you got. If you got the American imports, they still had them in this country. But now, if people have heard of Charles Atlas... It's only in that context. It's amazing. Yeah, because, you know, that's the thing. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, the Rocky Horror Show, there 
popular popular culture theatre that now needs footnotes. So, I mean, not this isn't a footnote. This is important to this show and to you and therefore to me. When did you first see the Rocky Horror Show, Ros? I saw, not alas, the first run at the Royal Court. As I recall, and memory could... It's always a matter of print, the legend. I saw it after it transferred down the road. Now, whether I saw it in the then slightly derelict Chelsea Classic or what then is now the multiplex a little further down, I think it was the multiplex, so it would have been probably the spring of 74, but it might have been a little earlier in the autumn of 73. But it was still the original cast. It went to the classic cinema in Chelsea. Uh, We were offered sort of West End theatres for it, and we didn't really want to do that. Um, And we managed to find this cinema that was going to be pulled down in three months uh, at a quite sort of reasonable rent, which meant that we didn't have to charge too much for the tickets. Um, so we took that for three months, and it went very well, and they pulled the theatre down around us, and we just moved on down the King's Road to another cinema that was also owned by the classic chain, which was the Isoldo Cinema, is now the King's Road. And what did you think of it? When did you go to the States? Blow me. <laughs> I, 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 it was one of those things where I went back to London. I was still at Oxford at the time. And I said, oh, my God, it's amazing. It's astounding. Well, time is creeping, and we are going to uh, talk to Lexi Turner in a minute. But another, th- so the last thing I wanted to ask you about where we've got it on the map at Sloan Square, linked to its original run at the Royal Court, is several of the films we've got on that part of the map. Uh, Joanna, The Breaking of Bumbo, uh, with Joanna Lumley in. Uh, the Pleasure Girls, with Francesca Annis in it, uh, Victoria. There's a lot of films about posh girls gone bad. What is it, or what was it in the early 70s about... Kensington and that part of Sloane Square which has got this association because I very nearly picked for um, Sloane Square The Bitch From the same stable as The Stud now comes The Bitch She's still in the disco business just she's still got her wits about her just she's still on top just You are actually losing money, Fontaine. How does that grab you? I'm not exactly destitute, darling. Oh, brother. She's not only beautiful, she's a bitch. Possibly the, uh, I think, inferior prequel, The Stud. Yes, well, it was all about, oh, gosh, women have sexual feeling. Oh, that's scary. If you're a bloke. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because they might not want you I don't think Jackie Collins well, I don't think the women in Jackie Collins would be all that interested in anyone who isn't Oliver Tobias well, quite. or an Arab sheik that was the other one wasn't it yeah and I mean but Brad's, Brad from Rocky Horror is not going to get a look in there no I mean yeah because he's just he, he's he's convention he's he's competition the way Tim Curry plays Frankenfurter, he's quite like Joan Collins in a lot of films of that period, the early 70s, where she was doing a bit of horror. Yes. The Jackie Collins films hadn't quite started. Yes, well, isn't she, have I got this wrong? Isn't she in The Road to Hong Kong? She is in The Road to Hong Kong. It's not very memorable in The Road to Hong Kong. I think it's surprising to me she didn't do an Emmanuel film. I think probably her agents just went, 
I think that might be career suicide doing that. Leave that to Sylvia Crystal, love. Yeah. But she did she, she did the last ever road Bing Crosby Bob Hope road movie. Not the best. Well, thank heavens that she, she saved it all and has gone on from strength to strength and being in all those fantastic Stephen Burkoff uh, plays and films because she made the bitch in the stud. And in some ways, I, I wonder whether I should have put one of those two films at Sloan Square instead. But Rocky Horror. <laughs> Rocky Horror. You've got to have it. It's it because it was that whole thing of a right. I mean, first of all, it premiered in Sloan Square, but it's so associated with the King's Road. Mm. It just feels right because wherever I wherever I saw it, it was on the King's Road, and I went to cheap cheap Italian restaurants beforehand, which one I can't remember, and. I think that's me. Me. Me going to see the Rocky Horror Show was was just one of those things of being an early adopter that was to serve me so well for the rest of my life. Just saying. Now, Ross Caveney, if you took a jump any further to the left, you'd be super suspended from the Labour Party. <laughs> Let's not even go there. Uh, and we're joined in the studio now by film scholar, DJ about town, Lexi Turner. Hmm. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we started off the show with the fabulous Tim Curry, and this show is going to... A lot of it's just going to be us singing the praises of Tim Curry, because who doesn't love Tim Curry who doesn't in Rocky love Horror? Tim Absolutely. Um, but we heard him explaining where Frank and Furtis' voice came from, which was Princess Margaret. <laughs> uh, one of the things I think is really interesting about Rocky Horror and Lexi and Roz, I'd like to hear what you think about this, is, for me, the most interesting uh, characters, personalities in it, are Magenta. Patricia Quinn. Yes. The wonderful Patricia Quinn. Messalina in I, Claudius. Who you have a story to tell us about in a well, moment. it's not a story. It's just a... A reminiscence. A bombo. <laughs> a um, moment. But you've also got um, Columbia. Little Nell. Yes. Who is practically family because she is the cousin of Peter Nichols, who co-edited the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. You really do know everyone, don't you? No. I just know everyone who knows everyone. It's not six degrees of Ros, it's two degrees of Well, Ros. actually, that's standard. Apparently, someone they've done the math, and apparently it was never six degrees. It's about 3.5. Well, the, you heard it here first on Music for Films. It's 3.5 degrees Where of that Ros, leaves Chinese peasants, I do not know. Quite, but we can all feel a little closer to Tim Curry now. So. Yes. And that, you know, that can only be for the good. Ah, oh, anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the thing I, th I think, I mean, looking at this as, a, I hesitate to use the term social document, but certainly a little time capsule of that period when Dave the Locust was a thing, when Bette Midler and the Rose was a thing. Cabaret was a thing. thing and other, mm -hmm. this is Cabaret, the movie. Punk, yes. punk hadn't yet happened. 
So let's listen to uh, some little clips I've put together of distinctive voices of character types, and I think this might be partly what uh, these distinctive characters of Magenta, Columbia and Frankenfurt were drawing on. Do please sit down. here to be of service to the public. Yes, but I don't think you're very experienced in the ways of love. If you want to know the way, ask a policeman. I find you very fascinating, Sydney. Would you show me your whistle? Of course, miss. It's not much of a one, I'm afraid. Nonsense. I think it's a beautiful one. May I blow it? The pea's gone. I'm afraid I got overexcited once and I breathed in. <laughs> Go on. Show me how you got overexcited. What the boys in the back room will have And tell them I'm having the same Go see what the boys in the back room will have And give them the poison they name And when I die, don't spend my money On flowers and my picture in a frame Just see what the boys in the back room will have and tell them my side And tell them I cried And tell them I died of the same He was then the goddess of desire Set men on fire I have this power Morning, noon and night it's wink and dancing Some quick romancing And then a shower Stage door Johnny's constantly surround me. They always hound me with one request. Who can satisfy their lustful habit? I'm not a rabbit. I need some rest. I'm tired. And tired of love I've had my fill of love From below and above Tired Tired of being admired Tired of love uninspired Let's face it, I'm tired Too soon, <laughs> I'm tired, tired of playing the game, ain't it a crying shame, I'm so 
So that was the delicious, the felicitatious, the flirtatious, the fizzling, the sizzling, the the frizzle in female form that was that is Fenella Fielding in yeah. Carry On Screaming. Carry On Screaming. We should get Fenella on the oh, show I'd sometime. Love to. Um, but then also there were there in the little clips. You also had um, Marlena see what the boys in the back room will have and then afterwards we had to throw in Madeline Kahn and I'm tired ah <laughs> oh, Madeline Kahn what was she like but uh, Columbia I think is also really intriguing because there was this character in the stage show who is kind of there in the title science fiction double feature picture show when you heard at the start of the show mm. being sung by Patricia Quinn you see her lips in the titles but you don't see the character Roxy. it's not her lips it's her voice, but... It's her voice, but not her. Apparently, they hide in... Stunt lips. Stunt, uh, stunt lips. lips. Stunt lips. Mouth double. Uh, lip model. Yes. Uh, so there's this character that was in the stage show, and you still see in uh, the, the touring show that Richard O'Brien still presides over, of Roxy. Roxy's the kind of the... The usherette. The usherette, the, uh, the rockette from the chorus line who couldn't quite cut it, but... The, you know, never made, ne- never made, never became a star. Radio City's loss is lucky strikes gain. Yes, and that kind of Clara Bow, Betty Boop, uh, uh, someone who I once knew who was an aspiring actress, who was that kind of petite Betty Boop, dark-haired Janine Garofalo type of personality, used to describe that role, um, that archetype as the Elaine, which is a you know Seinfeld reference, which is she's you know. And Lucille Ball, in her early part of her career, often used to play these, you know, wisecracking gals. Mm, like Velma in, Ca- in Chicago. Or, f- for that matter, Velma in Scooby-Doo. Yes, indeed. Yes. I'm sure that Velma in Chicago takes her name from Velma in Scooby-Doo. So, improbably. Ro- Rocky, Rocky Horror gets, gets a write-up for being a blossoming moment, I think perhaps along with... Uh, Bowie touring, you know, his Thin White Duke tour. There's that wonderful bit. Actually, let's listen to it. That wonderful bit in Cracked Actor where all the people are lining up, bless them, presumably, to see Halloween Jack. And when they got inside, they got this, this Brechtian thing instead. But the people in the lineup who are talking about um, how fabulous it is being in a lineup for David Bowie. I like people who are uh, ACDC. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not yes. saying Bowie's the best. Uh, like... I guess I'm living my fantasy. What's your fantasy? Bowie. He represents it all to me. Uh, Excitement, space. See, I'm just the space cadet. He's the commander. You saw for a long period, or for certainly over the last couple of years, a lot of kids sort of aping you almost, or looking very like you, so that they were... They, they would dress up and put things on very similar to you. Yeah. How did you feel about it? Well, a lot of it came out starting off like that. But uh, over the last year or so, it's changing in, the, in, the, in as much that they're, they're, they're finding out things maybe... Nothing to do with me, but the idea of finding another character within themselves. I mean, if I've been at all responsible for people finding more characters 
in themselves than they originally thought they had, then I'm pleased because that's uh, that's something I feel very strongly about, that one isn't totally um, what one has been conditioned to think. One is. So, I mean, there you could hear this kind of this hot cultural moment of Bowie touring and... and uh, the Rock Follies was part of that, and Judy Covington, and in a weird way, Evita, and yeah. those kind of musicals were well, as well. Well, I mean, it's worth remembering that before he got involved with the project that became the, the Rocky Horror Show, Jim Sharman had, after a brief period, scandalous period, directing Don Giovanni in Sydney in his early 20s, had been involved with uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. And that's how he knew Tim Curry. Everyone connected. There's an interesting group of people that... I mean, it's like originally the Rocky Horror Show was a project in which Rocky Horror was much more important and Frankenfurter much less. So let's talk about... I mean, obviously people tend to to focus, uh, as with Bowie's sexuality... You know, for perfectly good reasons, people tend to, to focus on the G and the B part of this equation, uh, and also, for that matter, the T. But let's let's talk about the L and the B. Is the women's roles in Rocky Horror, following on from um, Karen Black in Day of the Locust, and um, I mean, if you want to go there, Tatum O'Neill in Paper Moon. Was that Columbina archetype, which went on to be the sort of archetypal um, Blitz kid punk? Archetype. How important and was is that? And is a proto-manic pixie dream girl. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that was the thing, looking at the clips again, I thought, heavens, she is a manic pixie dream girl out of time. Oh, quite. And I feel, um, it's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to, to, to note that, that, that notion of uh, female sexuality in, say, Rocky Horror and all, and, all, and all of that sort of ilk of the 1970s because it contrasts so strongly to the musicals where the camp aesthetic was the evidence of gay male involvement in the production. Yeah. That it's now translated into the form of the performance and almost invariably it translates at a, at a darker level. Yes. I mean, it is interesting. One of the differences between the stage show and the film is that in the film, Columbia and Magenta make out. Yes, they do. Which I'd completely forgotten. Yes. Yes, yes. And specifically, they make out watching Rocky and Janet. And Janet. And and you feel there's a rather pleasant reversal of gazes here, where the hetero couple are adding a, a... a sousant of excitement. Basically, the two women who haven't shown that much interest in each other before, mm. as a result of the gaze, get turned on and do it. No, absolutely. I, I think there is something just so uh, no, it's so interesting about that. Yeah. I well, it, it's a show about the subversion. Yes. I mean, this is this is why it's an interesting show, even now, with all the problematic aspects of its attitude to consent. Mm. It's a show about sexual anarchy. Yes, uh, it is. It is truly queer in in what that word is meant to mean, and it's is why I I continue to love it. That yeah. the 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 at the first hint of gender confusion and. It plays with camp in the Susan Sontag way fantastically. That is yeah. what Rocky is, after all. Rocky is the truly camp character by being the most 
unambiguously masculine character, which by definition then puts scare quotes around his masculinity. Yes, I am just seven hours old and truly beautiful to behold. Exactly. And that all of a sudden notions of hetero or homo or bisexual become completely irrelevant. Give yourself over to absolute pleasure. Exactly. Which, you know, in Lacanian terms instantly becomes jouissance and so on and so on. But it's... I mean, you know, I, I do go on about this, but one of the issues about it as a piece of music theatre is in the tradition of the, anti, the anti-hero the protagonist. Yes. That just as Don Giovanni, and it's notable, as I said earlier, that Jim Sharman controversially directed Don Giovanni very, very early in his career, Don Giovanni is a very, very bad man. Very. But when they are about to drag him off to hell, we are on his side. Quite. When he refuses to repent and says, no, we are on his side. When he gets the peasants drunk on champagne and says, viva liberta, there's an element to which he's not lying. He's talking about his aristocratic privilege. And yet, at that moment, there is genuine freedom going on, and it's the freedom of chaos. The, the ending of, of, of Rocky Horror, certainly when I first watched it, would, would always throw me. Because there was, it came as such a surprise to find Magenta and Riff Raff all of a sudden introducing this repressive conservatism and deciding, I suppose, essentially that Frank Confetta had got out of hand and needed to yeah. be brought down. And again, it's it's the end of John Giovanni because after John yes. Giovanni goes is dragged off, the other characters come on and sing this straight-laced little ditty, which uh, W. H. Orton translated as "Mark the point and mark it well. Are you going to heaven or hell?" Which has to be the worst drive he ever committed. My goodness, yes. <laughs> um, but it's singable. It is. It's singable to the tune. It is. I still um, prefer ashes to ashes, dust to dust. If the law doesn't get you, the devil must. Well, yes. Um, but it's, it is the fact that sort of in almost all entertainment, chaos has to be paid for. Order has to be restored because otherwise it's order that pays the bill. Order has to be restored and all crimes must be punished, uh, which is it's it's. What always upsets people who watch films with me when they see that the bad character who's just apologized ends up being killed anyway and you go because there's a greater there's a greater law happening here. The good end happily and the bad end unhappily. unhappily. That is why we call it fiction, fiction. As Oscar said. As he did. And and, 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 and didn't and pay attention. Not even slightly. No, not from Reading Jail. But, and and yes, and, and I suppose there's something interesting. Perhaps that's the thing about Rocky Horror, is that we're supposed to be left upset. Yes, we are genuinely sad about what happens to Frankenfurter. Mm. I mean, Frankenfurter, who has done many monstrous things and is a, and is a rapist and is a murderer. yes. And absolutely, unapologetically, is both. Yes, absolutely. And yet, um, it's we we have this 
death which is full of pathos. Yes. You know, I'm going home. No, you're not. No, you're not. And then we get... Don't dream it, be it. We get the... The moral of the story is not that Frankenfurter is punished. It's that Frankenfurter, dead and punished, has nonetheless had this effect. You, you get there is a certain messianic quality to it. Yeah. We have to sort of imagine that the death happens before Don't Dream It, Be It, for it to work. But I'm, I'm willing to make those sort of... Well, that's what memory revisions. tells you, even though you know that yes, it's not so. Yes, exactly, it does. Because you, you do like to think there's a certain this is my body which is given for you in, 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 in the death. I suppose that there is something interesting, though, because we one can make arguments over the consent issues of Rocky Horror. One can't make arguments about the murder. No. Um, and the murder is very, very interesting because the reasons for it are only alluded to. Yes. And you sort of have to make up your own mind about it. And, and you do sort of come to the conclusion that he murders Meatloaf's character because he didn't measure up to Frankenfurter's own sort of desires for a male. But also because Frankenfurter had history with Columbia mm. and Eddie, Eddie preferred Columbia to Frank. Yes. I mean, you know, it wasn't just losing a lover, it was losing a lover to another lover. Yes, and someone that Frank considered uh, a an inferior yeah. to a certain degree. And, you know, at which point, I suppose, Frank and Furter's accent then becomes relevant again. Yeah. Because there is actually still a certain class element and there is a certain, you know, the the bourgeoisie being allowed to make these sort of hedonisms. But of course it's also interesting that Eddie is not the simple proletarian he is supposed to be because his doctor turns out to be Dr. Scott's nephew. Yes, that's right. Goodness, I, yes, I forgot that. Which I'd forgotten. Mm. It, you know, it, it, that Brad and Janet, in whose class Brad and Janet met. Yes. And of course, Frankenfurter believes that they're, they're, it's, it's all a plot against him, whereas in fact it's just com complete coincidence. Yes. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when um, Brad and Janet are driving up to, you know, the to see Frankenstein, Dr. Scott. Uh, yes, yes, to see Doctor to Scott and end up at the Frankenstein place in which there is a light. On the radio, you hear. Um, Nixon's step, nipping, uh, Nixon stepping off the throne due to Watergate, I believe. I think that's right. And you feel that th there must be some satirical, you know, of a, a, some satirical message of a much greater degree going on. I suspect it's not, not a message. It was just some, someone had, a, ha, had an idea and threw it in. It's like the fact that um, the lifesaver 
in the swimming pool yes uh, that that Frankenfurt is using during I'm going home is a life, is, is supposed to be a life preserver from the Titanic from the Titanic yes and you go oh that doesn't make much sense you go it didn't it was cool it they was did it because cool. it was cool yes it's like the fact that the church warden and his partner during uh, damn it Janet are the couple from American Gothic Yes. Why? Because. Yes. No, ab- absolutely. But, um, of course, the couple from the American Gothic painting are, in fact, brother and sister, which does, in fact, reflect correctly the odd n- relationship between Riff Raff and Magenta, who are essentially an incestuous couple. Yes. After all, there are, there are wheels within wheels. Why 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 does space alien magenta look like the bride of Frankenstein? Well, because because um why what why does Riffraff's blaster have three muscles? Because a lot of things are not meant to make sense. They made this movie in a hurry, just like they put together the show in quite a hurry. Yes. It doesn't all make sense, and that's actually part of the glory of it. It's what keeps it alive. Yeah. And it, it, it really is. There are surprising layers to it, I, I think, which, which does rather make it the shining of musicals. Yeah. I mean, I remember falling utterly in love with it. Mm. I was 24. I was... Younger than you are now, if you can believe that. <laughs> um, I was still presenting as male. I was deeply messed up. I was doing graduate work at Oxford and going to GLF meetings in London in my spare time. Mm-hmm. And I went to the show. Someone said, oh, you should probably go and see the Rocky Horror Show. You'll like it. And I turned up at the show, not quite knowing what to expect. And... It's a wonderful parody parody review, for one thing. It's a series... The songs, which are good songs. Very good songs. And they're parodies. They're all parodies of, of particular sorts of pop music. Yes. Yes, of course they are. And that's actually one of the ring- things that's wonderful about the show as music theatre. Mm. The, other, the other great show of which that's true, of course, is uh, Assassins. Yes. Um... But which I won't say more about assassins on this occasion. But one of the things that Rocky, the Rocky Horror Show and the Rocky Horror Picture Show are about is sexual awakening, because you suspect that Brad probably is not changed by what happens. I, I suppose. Possibly. No, I, I suppose. Janet not. certainly is. Yes. No, that, that, no, that that goes without saying. I mean, again, I feel, and it's about the move from the fifties yeah. to the the fifties to the sixties. Yes, and on, and and I I feel in in many ways like any good queer production should do. It isn't about normalising queerness. It's about queering straightness. Yes, yeah. and it, to that level, Brad being changed. Well, the meaning of Brad is changed yes. now. The notion of the uh, upright, solid citizen has now been changed yes. to reveal sexual anxieties and indeed sexual leanings. And, and and that's what makes it such a such a fabulous such a fabulous piece. And in a way acts as the contrast to cabaret. When yeah. you think that you cabaret in fact has a 
very straight-laced... Well, the, the film, anyway, has a straight-laced gay man who gets rather straightened. Well, or sort of. Or sort of. Ra- yeah, as I said, rather. This was Sally Bowles in the early 30s. I wore my dash all day and I worked late at the cabaret. Full of life. I love parties. Doesn't my body drive you wild with desire? And love. Oh, Brad. A special girl. I'm going to be a great film star. <laughs> that is a booze and sex. Don't get me first. On the brink of something fantastic. Truly touching things about the movie is that Sally Bowles sells her fur coat to buy an abortion because she doesn't want to to mess up. Yes. Uh, the, the 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 protagonist's life. She says, "I wouldn't be a good wife to you." And, you know, you'd probably want to go off with a boy anyway. Yeah. But, I, you know, I do not fit into your life and I'm going to be the person who tells you that. You're not going to tell me that. I make the choice. Yeah. Because it is about her autonomy in a weird way. No, it, it certainly is. No, it certainly is. I have a lot of love for cabaret and what's known in theoretical terms as its example of the musical's desertion of narrative utopia. Yeah. Um, they're, they're two, they're two shows. Well, I saw the show of Rocky Horror and the film of Cabaret in the same few months. Mm-hmm. And they helped change me. Sure. They gave me guts. Mm. Um, and I love Susan, what Susan Sarandon does with Janet, just yes. as I loved what Julie Covington did. Um, it's a show that's been... Very lucky in its stars and their subsequent careers in many cases. And it's also been lucky in its audiences because I think we have very briefly to talk about the Rocky Horror phenomenon. Quite. And the way that generations of kids were given permission by their straight friends to be queer. Uh, of course, for something to truly count as a cult anything, it requires its audience to be on one level devoted but often generally speaking small and I'm not sure if Rocky Horror by that definition can even count as cult anymore well it's it's odd because it's in it's one of the six the six great films in the midnight in that famous midnight movies documentary about cult movies yes it's just that it's transcended cult yes it has but it's become a subculture mm I mean, much like Cabaret, these are two films which really address the limitations of queerness Mm. and the limitations of queerness within a greater society, but forever encourage you to try and break those limitations. Because Cabaret says, you may lose. Yes. Cabaret says, you will lose big time. No, absolutely. If, If you needed to divide the musicals of the 50s and the musicals of the 70s easily. And when I say musicals of the 50s, I specifically refer to the MGM Freed unit, the Singing in the Rains, the Pirates. You say that these are straight films made by queer labourers. The camp aesthetic is the evidence of queer labour. And they are generally speak... And, you know, you have people who create livings and livelihoods out of their lives that they couldn't express sexually. This is the thing about the uh, hysteria of camp 
is that it's hysterical in the Freudian sense, and that yes. it is it is what happens when you take queer existence and remove sexuality from it. Cabaret and Rocky Horror, that is the reintroduction of queer sexuality, but still with the hysteria from its repression. And that will end, that will end darkly, and it did. Yes. But these are musicals made by people who were watching, who watched the failure of, uh, well, the perceived failure of sexual liberation of the 1960s and saw Vietnam coming mm. and knew that dark times were ahead. Which and is yet. the interesting and worrying thing yes. about, which we haven't seen yet because it's not been broadcast yet, mm-hmm. the remake. Well, absolutely. And will that work? We don't know. No, I, I honestly don't. And what does it prefigure? Well, we won't know that till November. Enchanté. It's just a jump to the left. <laughs> One certainly hopes it might have an impact. Yes, let us hope that tomorrow does not belong to Donald Trump. No, my goodness. But perhaps a new Rocky Horror makes more sense in an America of Donald Trump than an America of Hillary Clinton. That's the worrying thing, isn't it? It is. It's, it's, it's such an interesting thing about Rocky Horror. We were discussing on the walk from one studio to another that the Wicker Man sequel, if it had anything, it at least was memorable. The remake. Yes, the the oh sorry, the sequel, the remake, was at least memorable. I I think perhaps the the greatest curse to the remake of the Rocky Horror is that it would be quickly forgotten. Yes. Because one hopes that something big should come from it. Uh, and- but what that big thing is. There's a large question mark over my head. Yes, I mean, uh, I... And we've had the disastrous example of the Rocky Horror episode of Glee. Oh, my goodness. I I haven't seen Glee, but I have seen that. Yes, Glee was at its best, considerably better than that, but mostly in the first season. Yes, from sensational Transylvania. Well, in fairness, the episode was about censorship. Was it? Yes. Oh, yes. It was very much about their having to censor the show to do it at all. Mm. But that was, to some extent, a cop-out. Quite. So we've talked about Rocky Horror's influence on Western culture, on London, on America. On the youth of today. But Rocky Horror's influence, of course, extends far and wide. And a very uh, prominent example of this, which... I wish now to contemplate, if you will indulge me. Yes, indeed. Mohammed Shebel's uh, very intriguing film, Anyab. Anyab. A.K.A. Fangs. Fangs are everywhere.
So there you heard a compilation of two of the very rousing musical numbers. The uh, the kind of Jim Steiner-esque take on um, There's a Life at the Frankenstein Place. Yes. Which sounds a little bit like Ultravox and quite yeah. a lot like ABBA and in sort of strange ways like Falco. Yeah, very odd. Uh, and then after that, the funky Bedouin stylings of everything looks like everything yes now if you can go and watch this whole film on archive.org with subs and you'll see that the the lyrics to that song about the world being like a gazelle which Dracula has tamed yes Dracula's world is pink and black rose yes that's a very odd odd message to take away and yes at the end there is the sinister hunchback who Turns out not to be the loyal servant we are supposed to believe. There is the Brad and Janet figures who are engaged. And their only desire in life is to have a, a flat with a phone. Mm, and a television. And vampires are real. Vampires are the cab drivers who uh, overcharge you and the doctors who won't treat you unless you pay them a bribe. It's a very interesting approach to Rocky Horror, which, yes, there's all the stuff in there about sexuality... Yes. But then you've also got things like, I mean, once you've got over the shock of a black character in a Rocky Horror pastiche, I'm just saying. Just saying. It's the fact that Rocky in Fangs is actually Apollo Creed from Rocky, that the music that goes alongside some of his numbers is quite clearly drawing on the music from Stallone's film. And this is a black guy in Egypt, a country where the Nuban minority in the South have been systematically displaced from... Uh, their traditional lands and don't get me started don't get you started because it's all a sad and sorrowful story and what's the pomp and circumstance march number one by elgar doing in the middle of it only mohammed shebel friend of arnold toynbee the esteemed historian eminent egyptian broadcaster bon viveur a korean bohemian in very much in the the mold of ian forster who of course Mm. wrote that that very fine uh, book about cottaging on Alexandria's trolley buses. And, and popularised Kavafi, that great Egyptian poet. Well, so there you have it. There you have it. Rocky Horror, Fangs, and a whole world of interesting films from elsewhere. What are we talking about next time on Music for Films, Ross Caveney, my colleague? I'm genuinely unsure. I'm sure you can tell me. We had such a kind of interesting delve into the dubious and murky world of Whitechapel and the East End when we were uh, at the screening of Andy Milligan's Nightbirds. Deeply strange, but, but you know, not without its merits film. So um, I think 
we interviewed Kim Newman. That was broadcast uh, as part of the Scarama Festival on Resonance FM. But we did actually record uh, some other bits of interviews with people. There's there's more of the interview yes, with uh, Will and Vic from BFI behind the BFI flip side. Yes. So I think next time we'll we'll have a bit of a put a, together a a show where all the bits that you didn't get first time around. A best of a jamboree bag of jamb- of Whitechapel. Yes, indeed. Rather like those kind of delicious chocolate and sea salt and caramel bombouches that you can uh, purchase in Brick Lane. Yes, the taste of several different things. Well, that's more to look forward to next month on Music for Films. But in the meantime, Lexi Turner, Ross Caveney, thank you very much for uh, an illuminating and... uh, Let us us hope not foresighted. No, certainly not. An illuminating and transfiguring perspective on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And there is nothing else that we can play out with than the final number from Rocky Horror and the words of the narrator, Mr. Charles Gray. And crawling on the planet's face, some insects called the human race. Lost in time and lost in space and meaning. This has been Music for Films on ResonanceFM.com, ResonanceFM 104.4 in London. It's a Beekeepers production, and you can also find extended versions of all of our shows on thebeekeepers or one word.com. So that was music for films about the Rocky Horror Show. This is now more music for films, our exciting extended podcast version. It is indeed. And uh, you could hear, well, let's not uh, mince our words because we're on the podcast and we can be as blue as we like now. Can we? Because we're not on the radio, we're on your computer on the internet. And that was um, a bit of a documentary about the Ah. South London gangster and also actor who, as was being related in that that true crime documentary, on one occasion Princess Margaret asked to see his penis, which was very long, apparently. Ah. Sent over a lady-in-waiting. And there's a double entendre. Lady-in-waiting. But she didn't have to wait very long. 
can we think of any other double entendres to do with John Bolton? Very long. Nob bless the bleach. But it's all very sad, of course, because he died. Yeah, yeah, his head severed in a pub fight. Blimey. And and turn up somewhat askew at a, at a girlfriend's flat and said, I think I'd better go to Ireland and have it put back. But expired before he could get to Ireland. So there's a sort of tenuous link to the Rocky Horror Show there in that you've got kind of this weird world of toffs and posh people and, do- and dolly bird models and then the actual horror of, in this case, gangsters having their head almost cut off and having a very large penis, which is, uh, even by my standards, quite a sort of tenuous leap of logic. But there is method to my madness, Ros Cable, I, I As there you. always is, as there, as there always is. Which is, since this is... More, mu- mu- more music films, films are extended podcast our extended show, podcast our very long podcast which you can find on thebeekeepers.com which I don't know why I'm telling you that because that's probably where you found it I am not sure because we're now recording this podcast in May and we recorded the Rocky Horror show with Lexi in when was that? September? September. Since we made that show, um, the Halloween Rocky Horror remake has been on, and we've had time to think about the Rocky Horror show and that show. I think you're right, and I've spoken to other people, I think you're right, I think I've put Rocky Horror in the wrong place on um, the map. Uh I put it at Sloan Square because that's where it was first performed. But you have made the case to me, and other people have made a spirited case to me, and I think you're right it belongs on the king's road i think I yeah. need to move, when we do overground i think i need to move it to the king's road and put probably the bitch yeah. at sloan square bitch. isn't it amazing through the magic of radio that every single time i mention joan and jackie collins the bitch that, yeah. that music comes on as a music bed it does ah uh, the bitch uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> But, I mean, there's a, it's a question of whether you regard the brief run at the Royal Court or the longer run at, at the uh, Kings Road Cinema, uh, whichever one it was. Um, it, was as, an old, it was an old Rialto. Real Rialto. What news? Um, as the more canonical. I, I'm obviously biased to the Rialto because I, I, that's where I saw it with the original cast. So you originally saw it when it was in a cinema at the King's Road? Yes, I yeah. didn't make it to the Royal Court. I wasn't that hip. So what? the reason I'm bringing all this up is that what interests me about the Rocky Horror show is that you've got both that posh voice that Tim Curry does, which is based on Princess Margaret, yes. but then it's also kind of slumming it a bit on the King's Road. It's a little bit dodgy. There's an element yeah. of, you know, someone might get their head cut off. Mm. Eddie gets chopped up with an axe. Yes. So which, so which is it? Is the Rocky Horror show... Is its its cultural energy, at the risk of sounding pretentious, is it located at Sloan Square and that kind of Joan Collins Asian Square? Because there's a lot of films on the Scala map around that end of um, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of that side of Marble Arch and yes, um, it's near Kensington Palace and, and bit, bit between Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace. So we have these films on the map like Joanna. And The Pleasure Girls with Francesco Anacin at Victoria. And uh, you can hear in the background the music of Her Private Hell. 
which is private hell which is another terrific recent bfi flipside release which i've been digging as i'm digging john scott's fabulous stylings fabulous stylings handsome stylings handsome which you can hear now from the, the terrific party sequence it's a great film her private hell produced by this very interesting guy batu sen batu sen was making these sorts of soft exploitation films where you'd have a young lady from the provinces would come to London and either be corrupted or not corrupted. So you have films like The Pleasure Girls where, I mean, I'm spoiling it for people who haven't seen it, but basically she makes it out all right. Or you have films like Cool It, Carol. Cool It, Carol? Cool It, Carol, which that's a whole that we'll do a whole show about that but I mean call, call it Carol which actually I can hardly wait is but it's but what's interesting about it is because we've got that at Piccadilly which was near the meat rack right and near like on that edge of Soho and that's what's interesting for me about the energy that side of mm. the West End is it's between the seamy world and the, the posh world yes Sloan Square is just posh yes but what about the King's Road in 1974-75? She was there. Yeah, well, I mean... And you're quite, quite posh. I'm, well, I'm fake posh. I mean, I, one of the things I learned to do at Oxford was read Anglo-Saxon, which end of a punch stand, which fork to use, and how to convince people that I came from a rather different background to that which I did, because... It was a survival tactic. And, I, and I'm bound to say, from having made that show about the Rocky Horror Show, I would sit and think, God, if only there was a guest I could get in who had simultaneously been at Oxford with Bill Clinton and been in the Oxford Union and been a civil servant in Whitehall, but also been a trans sex worker in Soho. Who do I know who has all those attributes? Oh, well, there you go. Um, well, one of the things about the King's Road was it had a lot of cheap and cheerful places to eat. You know, that pizza bar called Picasso and which was very cheap back then and or you know several branches of things like Stockpot. What was Stockpot? It was a place where you could eat not very nice but filling and nourishing and not actually made you sick uh, spaghetti bolognese for a couple of quid. Wow. And they didn't have very good chips, so I lost the grills. And they had those very nasty canned peas that aren't marrow fat peas. They were sort of brown, weren't they? They're kind of grey, grey brown, yeah. And slightly slimy. It's from being preserved in brine, I think. Yeah, horrible. Whereas marrow fat's fine. I still eat marrow fat peas as comfort food, which demonstrates that I'm really not posh at all. There's like that wonderful story about Peter Mandelson. And. You know, when he first went to Hartlepool and said, and, and went to a chippy and said, oh, I'll have a helping of guacamole, thinking that the washi peas were guacamole. <laughs> Allegedly. Oh, Peter. It is said, it is said. Bless Peter Mandelson, bless Peter Mandelson. No, let's not. Oh, no, no, let's he's not. A, he's, a, he's a character from a, he's a minor villain from a 60s movie, I tell you. <laughs> Can you imagine Peter Mandelson's 60s exploitation film? Yeah. Lots of brill cream. <laughs> and the moustaches. He'd be in there with the, those little toothbrush moustaches. Well, no. It, way, it, ahead of the, way ahead of the game. Well, it'd be, it, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Peter Wingard as Jason King. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. 
So, Mandelson, how will we solve the problems with the Labour Party? Oh, well, I'll do what I always do. I'll drink a bottle of claret, get into the roller, drive out of the countryside, find an eccentric general who's trying to lead a coup, cop off with his daughter, and then some people in kinky spacesuits will run around. <laughs> Good Lord. That's uh, 40 minutes, 40 minutes of... Department of S. <laughs> in anyone's money. Well, that's perhaps that's what Peter Mandelson could do. After all, Mr. Barclays, he can bring back Jason King, and I, I'd uh, certainly that would be great on Netflix, wouldn't it? Mm. Well, or, or, or he'd be the masked villain in Flash Gordon. Yes. Yes, there was a point where Peter Wingard couldn't afford to be recognised, so became masked villains. <laughs> Just saying. So we've kind of deviated somewhat from as we always do in an entertaining and digressive fashion. What is the nature of the Rocky Horror Show? Is it, is it between this poach world and this seamy world? Or is it one or the other? That's what, well, that's what I'm it's, it's, it's both. I mean, it's, as I always argue, it's in that vein of music theatre, sometimes opera and sometimes musical, which is about the interface between the poach and the not poach. You've got, on the one hand, Don Giovanni wandering around seducing peasants. And let's not forget that though he, uh, he, he, he sexually assaults members of his own class, he also won the, won the most tender, though deeply suspect, love duet in Don Giovanni is, is him seducing a peasant girl. Mm. So it's, it's about class for... You know, that sh- Music theatre about anti-heroes is always about the mixture of classes. You've got the beggars, we've got the Shrubney Opera, and the fact that Macheath will be saved by the Crown. You've got uh, the Rocky Horror Show, where this alien scientist talks like Princess Margaret and messes up the lives of wholesome American middle-class teenagers. You know, you've got a perpetual game of class and, and power. So what's the deal with the remake, reboot, reworking of the Rocky Horror Show? Because since we made the, the radio show yeah. that went out, we've seen um, the Glee cast version of the Rocky Horror well, Show. Well, the, 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 ha- the Glee cast yeah. version, the Glee version had happened and wasn't very good. And then they had what was supposed to be the much better version. And wasn't. Some things have their moment. So what... And the moment of the Rocky Horror Show was the original run and the movie. With that, which is mostly that cast. The criticism that people made of the Fox TV reworking of Rocky Horror um, with Laverne Cox as Frank and Furter was that it should have been done live. That The fact yeah. that it, it, it tried to have this sense of still being a movie rather than being a live show was one of the things that let it down. And it wasn't terribly interesting its use of that. I mean, the thing about the Rocky Horror Picture Show is that the Rocky Horror Picture Show doesn't pretend to be the stage show, even though it's much closer to the stage show in terms of the cast, in terms of the the crew, in terms of the people who are working on it. Uh Whereas the Fox show was just a bit vanilla. Mm. 
despite the presence of Laverne Cox. Now, yeah. let's... Bless, bless Well, Laverne. exactly. So the one shining light in that Fox version of Rocky Horror is Laverne Cox. Absolutely. And, you know, if only I had a guest to hand who could speak in an entertaining and knowledgeable way about only the biggest trans star in the world at the moment. Yeah. Fred, Janet, what do you think of him? Well, I don't like men with too many muscles. <laughs> I didn't make him for you. Um, why is Laverne Cox so great even in something not very good like a remake of the Rocky Horror Show? For a whole bunch of reasons, some of them having to do with the fact of her being unashamed in her refusal to have... She's astonishingly good-looking and beautiful, but she's not good-looking and beautiful in a conventional, passing way. Mm. I mean, she's written very effectively about the importance of trans people having their own good looks that acknowledge difference. So for, for people who are listening who perhaps aren't uh, sensitive to uh, the trans experience, explain passing to us. Oh, um, it was always assumed that, particularly by the medical profession, that to, quote, succeed as a trans woman, you had to disappear into the general population and never be seen again. There was this thing called going stealth, where, by analogy with fighter planes, where you became invisible. And people were judged by the extent to which they could disappear after transition, which was tough luck on anyone who was a bit on the tall side or a bit on the short side in the case of the guys, um, or who just... Couldn't afford endless plastic surgery, who, or who just had bad medical luck, as people sometimes did. Um, and one of the things that is so admirable about, about Laverne Cox is that, given that she suddenly became a big star, she didn't pay any lip service whatever to the idea that she should be conventionally beautiful mm. you know she is beautiful she's beautiful in a way that sort of go isn't quote androgynous it's poly polysemous mm. you know that you know she is beautiful in a number of ways that stick out a number of different signals and endlessly engaging and, and, you know, and watchable in Orange is the New Black and even good as Frank and Furter in a, yeah. a, a pretty... Like, and and in that not very good legal show that crashed and burned after about five episodes called Doubt. What's the significance to the way that Vern Cox has been able to become this massive scintillating star uh, and be African-American and not have to pass reminds me in a lot of ways of RuPaul and... That wonderful film, which I wish to also not cast shade on. See what I did yeah. there. Not cast shade on, but, you know, direct yeah. some love towards Paris is Burning. Yeah. Well. Let's talk about Paris is Burning for a minute. Paris is Burning, which was a relic of the African-American ball scene as it had mutated in a particular period. Because the point is, African-American trans people... 
like other trans people, had a long history with balls and parades and competitions. It was part of the subculture. Going back, in the case of uh, Harlem, well into the well, well, well into the nineteen twenties, and it had all something that, at different points, was more underground or less underground. Um, in London, in the fifties and sixties, there was a white drag ball scene, mostly operating out. I mean, after all, I know there still is operating out of the Porchester Hall, which was partly professional impersonators, partly trans women, partly transvestites, partly just gay guys who felt like putting on a frock for the evening. And it was a very nice, mixed, bouncy scene in this hall over a swimming bath in the Queensway. And you went to this? I went, I went to a couple of them when I was a teenager. And they were kind of fun. Sounds great. I mean, when you watch Paris is Burning and the main thing that you know, I watch it and I wish, I wish Willie Ninja had got more credit than mm. he got. I mean, there's this, this, it's a whole other discussion, but Madonna ripping off yeah. voguing from Willie Ninja. But that's the thing. It got caught up with a particular dance scene. It also got caught up with something that has recurred in the community in different places and times, which is people someone slightly older and wiser in the community looking after a bunch of younger people. And that's a thing that inevitably in an embattled community... So these community, were houses? They were houses, ho yes. houses. Um, usually because they weren't houses, they were flats. So it was like a house... So Willie Ninja had a house of... Yeah. Was it a house of Ninja? Probably. Yeah. Um, and the house of La Bea and And they'd be partly people just becoming elective family, family, partly people teaching each other techniques for walking down the street in safety, partly people slightly um, exploiting the youth and beauty of some of the, some of the people who were their acolytes. And of course, there are, there are similar scenes elsewhere in the world. I mean, you know, sort of, after all the hijra, you know, totally organised yeah, uh, yeah. totally around that sort of thing. In fact, in a lot of places, it's practically became a temple before the first the moguls and then the British cracked down on it. And yes, I mean, it's, it's a self-organising thing because when I was a teenager, I hitchhiked to Manchester and hung out with groups of older trans women in, in Manchester and I learned a lot about who I was from them. And then, when I first transition, finally transitioned in my late twenties, I, because I was privileged enough to have got a licensed squat out of a housing association, I ended up filling it up with a whole bunch of kids who were working the streets in Soho because they didn't have anywhere to live. I mean, you know, it was literally a couple a couple of them got thrown out of the flat where they were staying in the middle of the night because they wouldn't put out for their flatmate's boyfriend, uh, she being in jail at the time. And literally at one o'clock in the morning, there was a ring on my doorbell and I opened the door and there were these two little drowned rats. And I said, well, you'd better come and stay, hadn't you? Mm. And that's 
sum of the whole thing about the house culture is as simple as that. There's a very moving scene, which we'll actually will play from Paris is Burning, where some of the they're kids. I mean, they are kids. They're yeah. almost children who've who've got into this, but this um, scene of ballrooms, trans yeah. trans people dressing up, having an event where they get prizes for the best costumes. Mm. There's voguing, this particular form of dancing. There's casting shade, which I want to ask you yeah. about in a second. But these kids that you'll hear now, I mean, they're basically First, like you're talking about. A few houses were started and named after people who had won trophies. Like a new group of kids would just create a house. Then they'd work at building its name up, which worked. The House of Extravaganza, the House of St. Laurent. Ovenez. Pendarvis. Adonis. Lame. Pendarvis. St. Laurent, of course. <laughs> Dupree. They saw me, and they all liked me, all the rest of the extravaganzas. And they decided, well, if you want to be a ball first, and if you snatch a trophy, then you become the extravaganza. That's how it's supposed to work with any everyone. But uh, like that, it wasn't with me. I just became an extravaganza. Hector Extravaganza, he's the one who started the house. He was the first gay man I ever met. The first time he took me to the village, which was my birthday, I had just turned 15 years old. He threw a party for me. Out there, he bought me a cake. I met a lot of drag queens, transvestites, that I didn't believe were because they were so beautiful. And that kind of sunk into my head. And I guess that's why it kind of made me want to even do it more. They treat each other like sisters and uh, sisters, or brothers, or mothers, or, you know, like I say, oh, that's my sister, because she's gay too, now I'm gay. And she's a drag queen or whatever. They're effectively, they've been kicked out by their families. They've been kicked out by their family, are insecure, they, you know, they're making money and they're making money in clubs in Soho and clip joints in Soho, but they, ha you know, they have no way of hanging on to their money because landlords take a look at them and either don't give them a place or charge them the earth. What's a clip joint? Clip joint, place where people, where naive provincial men, go and think they're in a nightclub where they're going to get laid and are sold really bad fizzy wine as if it were extremely expensive champagne and are not going to get laid and are going to be presented with a massive bill at the end. I'm just going to play a little clip from, joint. from uh, London in the Raw. How do these clip joints continue? Surely everyone knows by now what they are. Maybe. The owners of this particular club had no reluctance to let us film and they hardly expected plaudits. They refer to the customers as mugs and they consider that anyone stupid enough to get taken for such an obvious ride deserves all he gets. And the girls exchange gossip on their big pitch the night before. So that was London in the raw. In the raw. About clip joints. And there was also street clipping. Which, shall I tell you about street clipping? I genuinely don't. I'm, when I asked the previous question, actually, that was... Street clipping. element of fakery, because I did know what a clip... I don't know what street clipping is street clipping goes people hang around on street corners looking cute guy comes up and says you you're doing business and people say if you're asking and they say well um how do we do about it and they say well i'll have to go and organize a room so if you just wait there 
yeah. Give me 50 quid. Oh, I'll yeah. go and pay for the room yeah. in advance. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and that worked. Amazingly. Wow. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, except, of course, people tend to get caught by the police and spend a lot of time in jail for it. So what was the difference? Taking money on false pretenses, you see. So what was the difference between that kind of sort of Soho trans sex worker scene where trans people wouldn't actually gravitate towards each other for, you know, for safety, for security, yeah. for familiarity? And what you see in Paris is burning. And what, I want to relate this back to Richard O'Brien when he was yeah. thinking about his sexuality and identity right in the Rocky Horror Show. There's no voguing in the no. Rocky Horror Show. There's no casting of shade in the Rocky Horror Show. There is a lot of dressing up. There's a lot yeah. of... And I mean, you also had, I mean, the other thing I came across when I was like in my late teens, early 20s, was a lot of people, some of them trans, most of them just gay men who were, worked professionally as impersonators, who'd come to doing stage drag through the war. Because obviously, if you got yourself into ENSA doing, doing drag acts, you were safer and if you were obviously flagrantly gay people would say well you could put a frock on do an act so there was a whole generation of by the time i knew them middle-aged late middle-aged people who'd been working the pub circuit the club circuit for ever since their national service so this is sort of danny larue's generation danny larue's generation of, of drag performers as opposed to the people who were trans and ran off to France to be in the much looser clubs there. Um, so you had that, and you had a lot of bitchery around that. You had a lot of people transitioning through that scene latterly, because obviously a lot of the younger generation who didn't go off to France to, to work in the Paris clubs uh, worked that circuit for a bit and then transitioned. I knew some people like that. And so you've got an overlap with the whole Polari scene. You've got a just general culture of bitchiness. I mean, the so, shade is bitchiness. Uh, but how, so and there's a particular cross crossbred in the case of African American drag queens and trans people with the whole doing the dozens subculture, where insult is one of the fine arts. You know, you, you know, it's the whole your mama. Yeah. Thing. Don't talk to me like you know me because you don't know me. Yeah, exactly. Girlfriend. There's that whole thing and it overlaps with camp bitchiness and mutates and becomes a thing that is sometimes quite wonderful. So this is an interesting thing about the Rocky Horror Show. It doesn't have Polari in it. No. There isn't this presence of the old drag queens. In its transfer to America, which is really when it became both on stage but also as a film, it became a thing. Yeah. There's no Sylvester no. There's no coquettes. It was actually divorced from all of that. However, what the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the 1975 film of Richard O'Brien's stage musical, has done is created an entire liturgy like going to church yeah. where people in the audience talk back to the screen. It's yeah. created its own Polari, its own cast. Exactly, because the street will always find its uses. Well, let's listen to a little bit of Sylvester to round that up because we love Sylvester. We love Sylvester.
make me feel mighty real, Roz. Ah, and took something from Carol King and made it something else. The street finds its uses. And every time I hear As that... As William Gibson said. Every time I hear that tune, I remember that lovely show we did. Do you remember we went to San Francisco? Yes. And we wandered to the bottom of Russian Hill and we went to a sacred site both for cult cinema and midnight movies and all the stuff we love, but also trans history yeah. because that's where the coquettes exactly. performed the Pagoda Palace Theatre hmm. which is now condos and you know the coquettes led to the angels of light and the angels of light were included my my ex-flatmate who is one of the major characters in my novel which just goes to show that there is always a, a link. link a link back to Ross Caveney yes six degrees of it's not even six degrees of Ross it's three it's often as not terrifying isn't it so to, to relate back to this idea we were talking about earlier on in the show, which is non-American, non-English language film industries adapting things like the Rocky Horror Show or, uh, in Mohammed Shebel's case, A Nightmare on Elm Street, we were very lucky that there were two esteemed uh, film personages from Turkey at St Andrews, where mm-hmm. I live. We spoke to Savash Arsalan, who's a mm-hmm. very um, respected Turkish academic, who's in a film by our good friend, Mr. Chem Kaya. Well, we also spoke to Chem Kaya, and I showed him a bit of Mohammed Shebel's um, fangs, and this is what they had to say about fangs, and also Turkish Dracula. Woo! The first Turkish version of Dracula was made in 1953, and it's titled Dracula in Istanbul. And it's very interesting. It's kind of a, a partial original script, uh, and they they developed the Dracula character quite well. It's a well done movie. I mean, like if if you like Dracula movies, I mean, like historically, it I can say it's a, it has a important place in that history of Dracula films. Uh, but then later on, what happened is there are a few other ones. There is a very interesting uh, one. Uh, he himself is, I mean, like a director who is living right now in his 50s, queer filmmaker, queer director, and an artist, visual artist, who did an MFA at UCLA on filmmaking. And then uh, he returned back to Turkey in 1994 and made his very first film in Turkey. And it's a very interesting vampire story it's titled Serpent's Tale and it's about a Byzantine queen who lived for the last thousand years under Istanbul somewhere (laughs) and she kind of comes back to life and keeps taking away lives of Istanbulites in 1990s Istanbul it sounds quite like there's um a slightly schlocky vampire sort of horror romance novel written by mm. Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough. Oh, uh, no, she she used the Comte Saint-Germain as mm. her kind of stand-in immortal. And that's I called a, fl- uh, a flame in Byzantium. So that's got a vampire Byzantine queen in it as well. Uh-huh. So it's, well, it's clearly a, a rich a rich scene. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... And there are also a few other kind of movies in which you have vampire characters portrayed, etc. But one interesting movie also is uh, by Ellen Robb Grie, mm. the French nouveau roman writer and filmmaker. And it's set in Istanbul. One of his vampire movies is set in Istanbul, which you might check. It's also interesting. Bonjour. 
Faisiez votre prière. Non, je m'amusais. Puis d'ailleurs, les femmes n'ont pas le droit de prier à cet endroit. Et pourquoi donc Parce qu'elles sont impures. Vous ne saviez pas Ce sont à la fois des êtres inférieurs et des démons. Elles ne sont bonnes que pour faire l'amour. C'est called immortal, I think. Immortal. There are two thoughts that occur to me about taking Dracula and putting him in Cairo or putting Dracula in Istanbul. I mean, like, the historical Dracula figure uh, makes a lot of sense because uh, the story takes place during the time of the Ottoman Empire and the guy was an enemy of the Ottomans. So, I mean, like... Istanbul as being the seat of the Ottoman Empire, the kind of Romanian count going against the Ottoman Emperor and everything. There's there's that kind of historical trope that is going on over there too in relation to that old Dracula story. Because in so, Bram Stoker's novel, his sort of rationalization for why this uh, why why Vlad Tepes, this Wallach king, is yeah. somehow a bad guy doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. He, he gives Dracula this incredibly long speech mm-hmm. where he explains his, his ancestors and he takes it all the way back to um, uh, Scythian witches, which, of course, that relates back to uh, the Argonauts, is that after, ah, after yeah. Hercules leaves them at the Bosphorus Strait, mm-hmm. he goes off and he sires the Scythian nation because yeah. he... Um, he has kids with the mix of Parthenos. He used to be the mm-hmm. symbol of the, the Black Sea Kingdom. That's the mermaid, but with yeah. two, with yeah, two yeah, tails. Yeah, yeah. So why would Dracula be an any, enemy of Christendom? Why would Dracula be a, a kind of a standing <laughs> symbol for you know, Oriental corruption of Western culture when actually he was the bulwark against the supposed corruption of Western culture? It, it makes a lot more sense putting him in Cairo or Istanbul. Yeah, I mean, but uh, being Romanian is also being in the being in the east of Europe. So there's a sense of easternness, even though I mean, like you share a religion and etc. West of Europe, east of Europe, there is that difference. But by, by the Ottoman understanding of Vlad Tepes, the historical figure, I mean, he was fighting against the Ottoman emperors. He was fighting against the Ottoman colonization of his country. At some point. And there's also a sort of, I think part of the fascination, particularly among the film directors who took on the kind of classic horror figures, particularly mm-hmm. obviously uh, James Whale mm-hmm. and you know, Br- Bride of Frankenstein. Is, there, is, there isn't uh, a queer subtext to Bride of Frankenstein, it's text. Uh-huh. Um, but also you could say in Dracula, and Bram Stoker puts it in the novel because he's Stoker in his own life. He was struggling with this feeling that Henry Irving, his, his, his client, but also his, his mentor, was draining him of the will to live. There is a kind of sense in which there's a lot of confusion, and that includes sexual confusion, about, about Dracula and about a lot of these horror, horror characters. In a culture, in, in a uh, Muslim culture, like Mohammed Shebel was making his film in the 80s, uh-huh. or Turkey since World War Two. Do these sort of figures from from horror movies are they something which directors can perhaps explore confusion within those cultures more easily than making it about local subjects mm. perhaps? It's kind of complicated. I mean, like historically in British literature, uh, thanks to Romantic movement and also the Gothic literature, you can find a 
nice niche spot in relation to the politics of time and everything. Uh, but I mean, like the Dracula remake in Turkey, I cannot find a kind of spot to it in relation to the politics of Tira, and it's very interesting. Uh, up until the last 10 or 15 years, I mean, the number of horror films made in Turkey was very limited. It was like, I mean, like out of, let's say, from the start of Turkish film history till late 1990s, if there are around 7,000 films made, only a handful of them were horror. The genre was not popular at all, up until a decade ago or so. Since uh, in the last decade, I mean, like, uh, I mean, right now, close to a hundred films are made, but they are very interesting. Also, films they are not related to vampire myth, etc. But uh, some of them are related to Japanese horror films. Some of them try to use elements from uh, Islamic evil figures, etc. Uh, they are kind of more type of homegrown type of uh, creatures, monsters, etc. coming from the culture more than being remakes or adaptations of other stories. So, I mean, like, back to your question. I mean, why? It was because of the success, most probably, of the Hollywood story. And, I mean, like, the locals wanted to make it because, like, in that same year, there was also a version of The Invisible Man, which was shot in Turkey in the early 50s. Uh, there was a Tarzan, which was shot. Tarzan in Istanbul. So, it's kind of, I mean, like, those popular Hollywood action-adventure movies are kind of remade hmm. with a touch of Istanbul. Thank you very much. Right, sure. But there, it's more about representation than about realism. And what I see in this Egyptian film is similar to that. Because there also, I mean, you don't, maybe you don't um, really, um, it's not so realistic. And, 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 and many things are like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but uh, in the end, you have an audience also, a reception of the film, uh, that has a different approach to the film because they come from maybe a tradition, no, we come from a tradition of storytelling, every, all of us. But um, maybe the last 500 years in Europe, after the Renaissance, maybe, um, there is a different way into storytelling because we have optical media, yeah. we have the development of the, um, uh, the third dimension, of the individual gaze, and all these things, and uh, romantic literature, the Jesuit theaters, and all these things that led to cinema, okay? Which, in these cultures, aren't there. These 500 years are missing. Because what do they have? They have storytelling. So there, there you had um, Sebastian Arsalan, who's in... Chemkaya's film and our mate Chemkaya the great the good who's in our, our uh, whole show that you can find on thebeekeepers.com where we talk about um, Yesel Cham cinema and we talk about Chem's amazing documentary about Turkish remakes of Captain America and mm -hmm. all sorts in the broadcast version of the show because we make these things in a very kind of, you know, jazz way. Uh, you mentioned that you've got this story about Patricia Quinn and, and uh, yourself, and then we didn't actually include the story, so I just which, want you... Which is basically just that I was at a party and I realised that the woman I was talking to was Patricia Quinn. And I said, gosh, you're Patricia Quinn. And she said, yes, I am. I said, well, I loved you and I, Claudius. And she said, go on, say it. I said... I saw the first run of Rocky Horror. And she said, yeah, OK, that figures. And then I went, 
Michael Rainey was ill the day the earth stood still, but he told us where we stand. And Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear. Claude Rains was the invisible man. Then something went wrong for very well. After a bit, she just went, bowed to the inevitable, yeah. joined in and sang it with me. Uh, all oh, the way through, bless her. I was going to do the drums. Doom, 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 doom. It's, See, like I, it's actually. a song I can sing, sort of. You can. That's very good. Even though most of the words. Patricia Quinn, of course, is Mrs. Robert Stevens, who's in several films on our sky yes. on the map. My favourite film, Morgan, a suitable case for treatment, but of course, also, arguably, one of the best films, Sherlock Holmes, is in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Indeed so. I'm just going to do a bit more. Off you go. Science fiction, ooh, wahoo, double feature. Dr. X, who will build a creature. See androids fighting, boo-wah-woo, Brad and Janet, and Francis starring for Blinden Planet. Oh, ho, 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 in the late night double feature picture show. I want to go, oh, 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 in the late night, double feature picture show, by RKO, oh, 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 in the late night, double feature picture show, in the back row, oh, 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 oh. Sorry. <laughs> and I would like to point out, listeners, that Roz uh, just gave us that impromptu and I found quite a stirring renditioning of um, that song from the Rocky Horror Picture Show without the assistance of stunt lips. Yes. They are your own lips. I they are that. my own lips. Well, it's very impressive. But not my own fangs. <laughs> Rented fangs but real lips. Yes. It was ever thus. Ever so. Well, so... it. Without wishing to... Sorry about that. Well, I mean, it's just the improvisational nature of this show, isn't it? Yeah. It's, you know, you, you, the mood took you and off you went. Yes, I, I'm slightly appalled. Yes, it's... Uh, well, I mean, you've often been accused of being sentimentalist. Yes, this is true. Shall we play a bit of Amanda Palmer's cover of that? Yes, indeed. Science fiction Why do you think her cover of uh, that song from the Cure Picture Show is of note? Ah, because it was a, one of the songs she was born to sing. I mean, she's... It's its one of those things, like, her performances of Court Vile. Um, there are some songs she was born to sing. I believe she's doing a, an album of, of songs in German. Well, I look forward to that very much. Amanda Palmer, singing in German. It's a trip. So to further extend this idea that we're talking about, which is film industries which are not American, not even English language necessarily, taking 
an existing film property like Spider-Man or Captain America or the Rocky Horror Show, and then not just adapting it, but exploiting it, which is to say there's some aspect of the film which they can exploit. Um, if you're exploiting American cinema, in a way, that's exploitation. So my other half, Shruti Narayan Swami, who I also present our other show on resonance, Chin Chin Chu, with, and I have put together our top ten of exploitation cinema. In order to understand what young exploitation is, we first need to say what exploitation cinema is. Yes, what is exploitation? Cin- what what is cinema? Exploitation cinema. You mean literally a cinema in which people are exploited in a, in a dark room where people are watching a film? No, we're not talking what, about what, Batman what, versus Superman. What, no. what is cinema? It's an optical illusion whereby projecting an image at 24 frames per second, the viewer perceives motion. And this has been used to create motion pictures over the last century. Thanks. Exploitation cinema means that some feature or gimmick of the film is exploited in order to hook an audience in. In the spirit of Barnum and Bailey's circus, that usually means something is exploited which makes for an eye-popping poster. A 50-foot woman, a giant insect, or even the humble, common, or garden sharknado can lure in the crowd. You can't just wait here and wait sharks to rain down on you. It's coming and it's coming fast. I just can't sit back and watch this. Sex sells. Violence also sells. And if you can combine sex and violence, everyone wins. From the 1920s, pioneers of US exploitation films defied the censorship of the big studio's self-imposed Hayes Code. They banded together as the 40 Thieves, exhibiting mostly in the mid and southwest leaving both coasts and the big cities like Chicago and St. Louis to the majors, while they churned out thousands of low-budget movies over the decades for people in places like Akron, Ohio, Demi, New Mexico and Flemingsburg, Kentucky. By the 60s, grindhouses and drive-ins had become the main place where film goers in North America could find cheap and dirty thrills. Without a doubt, and for all time, the reigning emperor of drive-in and grindhouse exploitation cinema is Roger Corman. The year 2000. America is a vast speedway. People line the streets to witness the greatest drivers on earth in a race from sea to shining sea. This is a death race. You finish first, or not at all. Death race 2000. Corman gave Martin Scorsese, Francis Coppola, Jack Nicholson... Peter Bogdanovich and Ron Howard, their starts as filmmakers. In the 80s, directors like Fred Olin Ray and studios like Troma used the same huckster aesthetic to clean up in the straight-to-video and straight-to-DVD markets. We, your humble slaves, offer you the virgin dance of the double chainsaws. 
Now that DVDs are giving way to streaming content, and with only a couple of sites like Netflix and Amazon actually paying money to producers, it looks like the exploitation age is probably over, at least in American cinema. The exploitation is what's happened when filmmakers and exhibitors from elsewhere in the world have ripped off something from American movies. Superman, or a property that's already successful like The Exorcist, which hooks the audience in. But the actual movie is tailored to the specific tastes and reference points of the local audiences. If your first language is English, then Turkish Spider-Man isn't anything like the Peter Parker you think you know. <laughs> all exploitation cinema has its roots in the circus and carnival traditions which are common all over the globe. Spooky puppets, freak shows, haunted mazes and hayrides, and miracle snake oil cures. The term can cover everything from horror, sleaze, science fiction and Hells Angels biker pictures, medical procedures, morality tales about venereal disease and the dangers of drugs, to travelogues, religious movies and films made for specific audiences like kids. Which leads us neatly to the first entry in our top 10 of Yanksploitation Cinema. At 10, it's... Little Red Riding Hood and Tom Thumb versus the Monsters. It's all new when K. Gordon Murray presents Little Red Riding Hood and the Monsters. Growing up in Bloomington, Indiana, K. Gordon Murray, son of the local funeral parlour owner, hung around circus performers who camped in the town during the long winters. As a teenager, Murray became a carnival showman, starting with the corn game, which British people would recognise as bingo, and slot machine parlours, helping to recruit carnival and circus folk to be munchkins in MGM's The Wizard of Oz, and assisting Cecil B. DeMille to cast The Greatest Show on Earth, led Murray to move first to Hollywood and then to Miami, Florida, where he set up a film production company and went into business with one of the pioneers of American exploitation filmmaking, Kroger Bab. Famously, Murray imported and dubbed the Santo and Aztec mummy luchador masked wrestler movies from Mexico for the US market. He's perhaps best known, though, for creating kiddie matinee movies. These were films themed around the Christmas holiday season, usually, and shown in afternoons, so that parents could offload their children at a movie theatre for a few hours in order to get some peace. We're yelling, we're foretelling the most excelling and enchanting, exciting kiddie treat ever presented during the Christmas season. See the delightful, amazing little snow people in action. Kissing reindeer. Santa's toys in action. All a part of Santa's Christmas Circus, coming to this theater and starring Santa Claus and Wizzo the Clown. Make plans now to see Santa's Christmas Circus. Murray created this niche business when he imported Rene Cardona's Mexican children's fantasy film Santa Claus, which includes an appearance by Satan himself in a confusing Christian allegory, which also somehow ropes in Merlin. The later America made Santa Claus Conquers the Martians and Rankin Bass's made-for-TV animated movies Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Mad Monster Party, which inspired Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, owe everything to Kay Gordon Murray's lurid Eastman colour fairy tale films, which were shot south of the border using copyright-free but familiar characters decades before Shrek. Of the dozens of Mexican movies Murray reworked to entertain bratty American preteens in the 60s, Little Red Riding Hood and Tom Thumb vs. the Monsters is by far the strangest translation of the lot. 
a live-action Disney cartoon made with professional wrestlers in trick-or-treat costumes as bad guys, Dracula and Frankenstein find themselves coexisting with fairy tale characters like Tom Thumb and Puss in Boots. All fighting the craziest, funniest, silliest monsters ever brought to the screen. Here a whole new music score with many new songs. You are just a playful rascal, but I know I'll find you near. But it's ready, he can smell you, and I'll catch you, don't you see? It creates gladness if you want it so. Like Universal Horror Classics, fairy tales based on the Brothers Grimm are already set in an imaginary Middle European, mid-19th century world. Add to this some out-of-place cactus like Rhodes, gigantic Central American muscle men in tiny lederhosen, and surrealist comedy, which seems to have strayed in from a jazz era, having more to do with Bessie Boots than with Uncle Walt. And the overall result goes beyond being so bad it's good to so bad you're not quite sure if you fell asleep and dreamed the entire thing under the influence of Lofafora Williamsi, better known as P.O.T. At nine, it's... Fantasy Mission Force, a.k.a. Dragon Attack. We all know Bruce Lee is no more with us. But he will be alive in our hearts for many years. He was a tough guy. He taught us a new way. Let's give a hand for the departed soul. Come on! After he was lamentably sidelined in the America-made Cannonball Run movies, and long before his successful move over to making films in Hollywood, the world's number one action star Jackie Chan made a string of motion pictures, mostly co-starring Sammo Hung and Yen Biao, like Project A, The Lucky Stars Trilogy and Meals on Wheels, all in an effort to get out from under the long shadow cast by the late Bruce Lee. This was something that all Hong Kong martial arts stars were trying to do in the early 80s, after a decade of endless regurgitations of End of the Dragon and Game of Death. Fantasy Mission Force, which strictly speaking features Jackie Chan in several scenes rather than being a starring vehicle for him, tries to achieve this break with the past by dispensing with any semblance of plot whatsoever. In fact, it does away with suspension of disbelief altogether as well, plunging the viewer over their head into a surreal, dreamlike pastiche of early 80s action-adventure genres. After a Japanese attack on Canada in World War II in which four generals, including Abraham Lincoln, are kidnapped, a snatched squad of Hong Kong misfits, including Jackie Chan, is assembled to rescue them, but only after Roger Moore's James Bond, Snake Plissken from John Carpenter's Escape from New York, and Sly Stallone's Rocky are all rejected as not up to the job. Now then, the best way for now is that we must try and rescue the four generals before the enemy lets us out. The purpose of this meeting is to decide who leads the assault group. The agent 007 is now working in South Africa. The ball detective, well, he defected to the enemy. Snake King, he's been dead for three years. Rocky, this is a military action. He's not suitable. Captain Black Fox, she's now retired to raise a family. Hey, who is that? Satan's Lieutenant Don Wynn. Not in any way bad but not especially good either. Fantasy Mission Force is a baffling 90 minutes spent somewhere between Tropic of Thunder, but made by Louis Boonwell, and a Benny Hill sketch. 
Bruce Lee also tried to break out of the martial arts killing machine stereotype long before his incredible worldwide success with Enter the Dragon. A sensitive man, sympathetic to the flower power ideas of the hippie movement, as was his contemporary Peter Fonda. Lee had been a prize-winning ballroom dancer when he lived in California prior to landing the role of Kato, the chauffeur come sidekick in TV's The Green Hornet. It's the Pierre Burton Show, the program that comes to you from the major capitals of the world. This edition comes to you from Hong Kong. Bruce Lee faces a real dilemma. He's on the verge of stardom in the United States with a projected TV series on the horizon, but he's just achieved superstardom as a film actor here in Hong Kong. So what does he choose, the East or the West? Well, let me say this. When I do the Chinese film, I'll try my best not to be as American as I, you know, have been adjusted to for the last 12 years in the States. And, but when I go back to the States, it seems to be the other way around. You know it's what too I exotic, mean? eh? Yeah, man. I mean, they're trying to get me to do too many things that are really for the sake of being exotic. It's the kind of problem uh, most budding movie actors as well. There are martial arts films which out Hollywood Hollywood more effectively, like the incredible 1982 remake of Buddha's Palm, a.k.a. Legendary Weapons of China, which boasted three female Jedi Knights, back when a 15-year-old J.J. Abrams was still working on his first job in the movies, the music for Night Beast. But Fantasy Mission Force is the most deadly. So much for Rambo. But at eight, it's... Batman fights Dracula. More liberties taken with US copyrighted properties by Asian filmmakers, this time in the Philippines. Leo D. M. Diaz's now lost 1967 color film is one of the many examples of vanished movie classics of the Pacific region, most of which are recorded in Nick Diocampo's book Lost Films of Asia. Batman Fights Dracula presents the worldwide film restoration and conservation movement with a direct challenge. Who gets to decide what masterpieces deserve to be hunted for and, like the king of the vampires himself, Vlad Tepes, resurrected from the dead? Who's to say that in the future, a film like Batman Fights Dracula won't be valued and seen as of similar cultural value to, say, a lost early Filipino film based on Wagner's Ring Cycle? Had Florence Stoker, widow of Brahm, the author of the novel Dracula, had her way, there'd be no Prince of Murnau's Nosferatu in existence. Florence Stoker fought to have the film expunged from reality. Her legal battles with Murnau's producers became the basis of many of the modern copyright laws in America, which prevent US or European filmmakers from making their own Batman fights Dracula without Warner Brothers also making megabucks. We have an arrangement. Don't pretend you mourn here, Doctor. I know you. Why him, you monster? Why not the script girl? <laughs> the script girl. I'll eat her later. At seven, it's... Motor. Previously known as Remix, Remake, Ripoff. Chem Kaya's 2014 documentary about Turkish cinema in the 60s and 70s reveals how Turkish filmmakers simultaneously battled with censors during periods of military rule and managed to produce thousands of movies with almost no budgets, most often by recycling European and American material. 
In the case of the Turkish Wizard of Oz, this meant remaking the entire movie with Dunyayi Kurtaran Adam, the man who saved the world. It meant physically splicing and for some scenes re-projecting footage from Star Wars and other science fiction movies with Turkish actors in the foreground. Kendilerine güvenlerini kaybedince beyinleri tam istediğim hale gelir. Bana olsaydı kimse karşı duramaz. Bu bir zeka savaşıdır. Ona yenildin kraliçe. Sadece beyinleri. Dünyanın beynini getiremedin kraliçe. Yok olacaksın. Yok olacaksın. Yok olacaksın. In Tifikrat Uçak's Dave Three Adam Three Giant Men, Captain America travels to Istanbul where he teams up with Mexico's El Santo, who was very popular in Turkey at the time. This Santo is different from the original, however, in that the Turkish Santo removes his mask. This is something Santo never did throughout his long career in Mexico until a week before his death in 1984. Turkish Santo also has a weird habit of sticking random objects in his underwear. In other respects, Turkish Santo is very much like his Mexican counterpart in that he battles with primordial forces of evil on the hero plane of the imagination, unhindered by observance of Western copyright laws. In the same year that Turkish Santo teamed up with The Cap, 1973, the original Mexican Santo and Blue Demon teamed up to take on Dracula and the Wolfman. ser que les inyectaba la vida han retornado al mundo de los muertos y a todos descansen en paz vamos por Lina United in Day 3 Adam Turkish Santo and Captain America take on Turkish Spider-Man in this incarnation not a web-slinging teenage photographer or a computer genius but the head of a cruel criminal secret society that has more in common with Hydra than it has with the Avengers Yeni bir örümcek cinayeti. Çalınan bir şey var mı? Evet, çok kıymetli bir biblo ortada yok. Olayı polise ihbar eden hizmetçi kız tespit etti. Elimizi çabuk tutmamız gerek. Mektup parçalarının yapıştırılması bugün bitmeli. Doğru. Biz de Santo'yla yatağı aramaya gideriz. Hadi gidiyoruz. <gülüyor> Hoşça kal Julia. Bye bye darling. When American superheroes cross over to other cultures, they often acquire a greater moral ambiguity than in the original version. Or in the case of the Superman, in Václav Voracek's 1966 Czechoslovak live-action comic book, Who Wants to Kill Jesse, they become actively evil, capitalist aggressors. In Gianfranco Parolini's Three Magnificent Supermen, and its sequel directed by Bito Albertini, Superman Against the Orient, another Shaw Brothers Hong Kong co-production, again starring Yuan Biao and a young Jackie Chan, who also directed the action sequences. Two of the superheroes are Italian jewel thieves recruited by CIA. Tony, hanno preso quel tuo amico. Io sono riuscita a fuggire per un vero miracolo. Ho paura. Non temere, siamo qui noi. 
Andrà tutto bene, vedrai. Basta trovare la cassaforte. Italy's most beloved comic book hero was another Raffles-style jewel thief, but in a kinky gimp suit. Diabolic, who had one glorious live-action outing in Mario Barber's 1968 Danger Diabolic. Turkish Spider-Man looks more like the Red Hood from Batman or the Galaxy Being from television's The Outer Limits. Disembodied, calculating eyes survey the world from within a featureless red cow. This Spider-Man is from a tradition of flip-flopping super good guy bad guys, a tradition slightly older than comic books which goes back a century to when movies drew on the same circus, vaudeville and theatrical imagery which early American comic book creators drew on 20 years later. Turkish Spider-Man is the Black Sea cousin of Shadow Man in Georges Frangie's La Nuit Rouge, made for the TV the year after Three Dev Adam. Franju, co-founder of France's Cinematheque with Henri Langlois, despite being a serious cinephile, also had a lifelong love of Louis Fulad's classic silent film serial, Le Vampire, about an evil anarchist secret society and its succubitic assassin, Irma Vep. Franju resurrected Irma Vep in his 1963 remake of Fulad's Judex. In the silent era, even the great Fritz Lang had made a movie serial knockoff of Le Vampire about an evil secret society called The Spiders. The low production values, which are often no production values, 
of many of the Turkish movies covered in Cem Kaya's motor make it easy to mock the efforts of film producers in poor countries trying to emulate the American or European film industries. However, it is a big mistake to assume that because a lot of the cultural signifiers are lost in translation, the intended audience for this other or third cinema didn't understand the references which filmmakers put in specifically for a local crowd and which the English-speaking viewers may still not get. Turkish filmgoers in the 70s, living through numerous emergencies under successive army juntas, could have seen a whole different set of meanings in masked wrestler films from Mexico, where a working-class hero stands up for ordinary people, or in a man saving the world by taking on an evil military empire. At six, it's... A girl walks home alone at night. There have been several Easterns, black hat, white hat cowboy films transposed as far from the American West as Albania. Anna Lilia Mirpur's Farsi language American horror film is a noir western take on the vampire movie, which appropriates the western iconography, but, like a young woman wearing a black shroud in Muslim country, has multiple meanings belonging to multiple viewers. At five, it's... Crumbs. Along with Amirpur's film, trailers for African science fiction films on YouTube and Vimeo are another clear indication that directors in the Southern Hemisphere are reinterpreting imagery from Hollywood and European cinema to reimagine the entire planet. Miguel Lanzo's Ethiopian Spanish co-production mixes visual motifs reminiscent of Kubrick's 2001 and Tarkovsky films, but set in a post-apocalyptic fantasy which has specific meaning for a continent bordering genocidal wars in the Middle East and constantly on the edge of environmental and social collapse. The theme of environmental devastation underscores Kenyan-born director Wanuri Kahiu's Pumzi. In Uganda, Ali Mikenge's The Invasion series, CGI aliens and robot colonizers meet a super-powered human resistance, for once not set in New York or London, but originating in Kampala. You're telling me these intruders are from that planet? The problem with you humans is your attachment. My man was on that ship. I did a simple rescue mission. I'm sorry, man. Sir, is what you said about me after sleeping out? The president is pulling the unit out. If this ever happens again, am I clear? The scattered survivors forgot the old world. At four, it's... Not quite Hollywood, the wild, untold story of exploitation. 
The Australian film industry was able to take advantage of the relaxed censorship laws from 1970 to make a series of rip-offs of American movies that, through films like the 1974 Golden Harvest co-production, The Man from Hong Kong, starring one-time Bond George Lazenby as a gangster, and especially through the Mad Max franchise, established an enduring legacy of gritty and realistic action and horror cinema. Listen, there's a Chinese cop in town. He's beginning to annoy me. Yeah, I think he should meet with a slight accident. Jimmy Wong Yu is the man from Hong Kong. A furious arsenal of martial arts. In my country, Caroline, we have a sport. We take the giant praying mantis, put him in the wooden cage, and make him fight for his life with his own kind. I thought you would enjoy such a sport. You and Jack Walton in a wooden cage. <laughs> He's a very dangerous man. In Mark Hartley's 2008 documentary, Quentin Tarantino enthuses about the 1974 Aussie biker flick Stone, 1980s Harlequin, a paranoid and bizarre mashup of The Omen, Equus and The Power Within, which was meant to star David Bowie and Orson Welles in a retelling of the Rasputin myth. If you're watching Australian genre films, you are going to be of the mind that, one, there's a desert everywhere, and two, marauding packs of bullies in cars that they could never afford. Elizabeth. are on the move. A new breed of motorbike gang. That's why we're here, man, together. Because when you're out there right with the grave diggers, what can stop us, man? What can stop us? We own the world. I'm closer to the golden dawn. Immersed in Crowley's uniform of imagery. The new messiah or a demon from another world. Harlequin had its, you know, smattering of sex and it had Broderick Crawford and David Hemmings and Robert Powell. It is a sort of modern political story, I suppose, based on the updating of the Rasputin thing. And that is really all. It excited me enough to say yes mm. and come 12,000 miles to shoot. Flim flam! And hocus pocus. After the producers got cold feet about casting Bowie and Wells wanted too much money, they instead cast Jesus of Nazareth star Robert Powell, David Hemming from Antonioni's Blow Up and Broderick Crawford instead of Wells from One Ton Ton, The Dog Who Saved Hollywood and the Rosemary's Baby sequel, Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. Russell Mulcahy, director of Duran Duran videos and two Highlander movies, made his second feature in 1984 after a Derek and Clive documentary, Jaws in the Outback, but it's a hog, Razorback. It's an animal out there and it's hunting us. So um, killing dogs is not a good thing to do in, in, in movies, I learned. But had to work on a capital C commercial criteria. In that regard, there were bigger, better American films than this one. I think Razorback's problem was style over substance. But there is a lot of style. Ah! It's not that I tried to make a long video, it's just that was my style. And that was seen as a minus at that point, whereas now it's seen as an absolute plus. 
And maybe that's why it has stood the test of time because it's gradually grown in to the style of filmmaking that is much more modern now. Made in the same Orwellian year, Turkey Shoot was this exploitative prison chain gang breakout picture combined with The Most Dangerous Game. It starred Linda Stoner from Australian TV's The Young Doctors and The Paul Hogan Show and British actor Michael Craig as a commander for an internment camp for social deviants called Thatcher. See what they did there? Rightly or wrongly, I decided to make it into a high-camp splatter movie. Stunts may be expensive, but blood is cheap. The prisoners have to recite this mantra, which basically says they're the lowest form of life on Earth. I am a deviant, the lowest form of life on Earth. I like the whole movie, but like after I saw that scene, I'm going to love that movie, all right? At three, it's... Virana. After partition, the Ram Singhanias of Lahore and Karachi moved to Bombay to run a successful electronic shop on Lamington Road. But the lure of Hindi cinema was too great and after a string of flops, a sequence in 1970's Ek Nanhi Munhi Ladki, There Was a Young Girl, in which Prithviraj Kapoor, wearing a devil's mask to carry out robbery, terrifies Mumtaz. This proved to be a surprise hit with audiences. The Ramsey brothers then began making movies in the style of Hammer and Amicus in Britain, on shoestring budgets with a crew of 15 or less, often completing production within a month. No one was making scary exploitation movies in the mid-1970s in India. By the end of the emergency period in 1977, the Ramseys were not only filling a niche in the Indian film market, but also pushing at the boundaries of censorship and popular tastes after a long period of paranoia, fear and pent-up emotions. On one hand, the Ramsey Brothers' 1988 film Creepy Forest is a straightforward exorcist rip-off it features demonic possession and strange pagan rituals in a film made for an audience that was not predominantly Jewish, Christian or Muslim, but was in fact Hindu and polytheistic. This was four years after the death of Indira Gandhi, in a culture in which widows are still ostracised routinely by their families. The theme of a young girl unable to escape from the spirit of an old woman inhabiting her body has an entirely different and haunting meaning for an Indian audience, which would have been lost on a majority of American film audiences for The Exorcist and its sequels. Nothing 
थकी ताकी जिंदगी होगी तुझे उस जलती हुई गुफा में दाखिल होना होगा तेरा जिस्म जलकर राख हो जाएगा अनकीता की रूह उसके जिस्म में फिर लौट आएगी At two, it's Superman of Malegao. Faisal Ahmed Khan's 2012 documentary about the struggle by filmmaker Sheikh Nasir to make Malegao Superman, a Superman ripoff shot on digital video, has been widely praised. for showing the sheer determination and the blind unquestioning love of fantasy cinema of all of its participants the documentary is made all the more poignant since the star 25 year old shafiq sheikh a muslim loom operator in a city of weavers 185 miles from mumbai emaciated and with sunken cheeks died soon after filming from mouth cancer caused by chewing tobacco He died with his last wish fulfilled that the Superman film in which he stars was shown in 14 of the city's small video parlors. In the movie, Shake Superman in a red and blue costume bigger than he is, given to him by a white-haired Jor-El at the edge of a pollution-filled lake by a landfill site, fights big tobacco. Nikal jaldi. Chal nikal. Dal. Ya, nikal. The town of Malegao has been rocked by communal violence in recent years. When in the theme music, the playback singer says Superman fights for justice for everyone, Muslim, Hindu, and Christian, Indian audiences know that an intergalactic boy scout who stands for truth and justice represents more than just the American way. And finally, our number one work of yank exploitation from the Egyptian time warp of 1981, it's Anyab of Fangs. Often mistakenly referred to as a remake of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Mohammed Shebel's 1981 film uses Richard O'Brien's film of the musical as a starting point for a commentary on Egypt's complicated attitudes to sexuality, money, and pleasure. Attitudes which are rarely if ever discussed in a country where LGBT people have been systematically stigmatized and targeted since independence by regimes of every political and religious persuasion. Shebel, as well as being a film director, was also a diplomat, film critic, screenwriter, talk show host, radio DJ, and friend of the eminent English historian and scholar Arnold Toynbee. Shebel died from liver disease at the age of 47, but not before he made several films in Egypt in the 1980s, which were riffs on American films, including Rocky Horror, The Exorcist, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. A funny foreign man directs a crude remake attitude to Arabic cinema, fails to take into account the political and intellectual sophistication with which, in a climate of moral and state censorship across the Middle East, exploitation filmmakers like Frank Agrama and Shebel approached a swinging '60s spy caper like Agrama's "That Man from Tehran" or a funked-up, ambisextrous Bedouin vampire flick like Fangs. <laughs> Shebel's 
Troubles Brad and Janet dream of one day sharing a flat and owning their own telephone. Troubles Rocky is a boxer, more Apollo Creed than sliced loan, in an Egypt in which the Nubian population of southern Egypt have been systematically repressed, relocated and marginalised by regimes obsessed with the prospect of internal rebellions. When you get over the initial shock of a black performer having a speaking role in a film based on Rocky Horror, the fact that Rocky insists to the foreign instigator of all-night blood-drinking parties Dracula that he was the first, Shebel's opaque inference becomes clearer. In the role of the narrator played by Charles Gray in Rocky Horror, Hassan al-Imam tells us that Dracula's world is pink and black. Whatever could Shebel be trying to tell us? For sheer dramatic power and energy, some of the musical sequences and Shubble's direction knock the 1975 American film of the British trans-tastic musical out of the ring. This is especially evident in the beautiful reworking of There's a Light and Touch It, Touch It, Touch It, Touch Me, which is vastly improved by the addition of Arabic percussion. So that was our top 10 of young exploitation cinema. So if you are American or listening in America and have been affected by any of the issues raised by this item, then there is a phone number at the end of the programme which you can contact. And if you are an American vampire and feel like you have been culturally appropriated or triggered by this programme, don't tell us on Twitter. Undead Lives Matter. Undead Lives Matter. Our podcast is More Music for Films, and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.